Welcome to the podcast of RUF at Boston University. Um, yeah, well, so we're still in the semester of Revelation, so, uh, but we're nearing the very end, and, and you'll remember that we, we've had a lot of repetition, right? There's this kind of repeat or replay if you're in the sports, like you see it from a different angle, this end of times, like God's coming judgment, but it's not just about judgment. There's an end to the story um, that's a really, really good one. We talked about at the very beginning uh, C.S. Lewis's idea of a true myth, right? He was a writer of children's novels and adult uh, science fiction novels. And uh, the story of Revelation and the story of all of Scripture, it's helpful to kind of see through that lens of a true myth that has an epic quality about it, has a cosmic, comprehensive quality about it. Um, it's a story that's given through these visions to the Apostle John. Um, and it talks about, it looks in the face, it exposes, it reveals evil for what it actually is. Um, in ancient mythology, there's this theme of this princess that needs to be rescued. It's kind of a, a, a motif, a trope, this damsel in distress, right? Um, uh, there's like a heroic warrior who arrives on the scene to defeat the encroaching evil kingdom or this encroaching, uh, this beast that's about to devour uh, the, the, this, uh, this princess or whatever. And sometimes they fall in love, sometimes they don't. But whatever happens, they live happily ever after. Um, I was reading up on the story of Heracles and Hesione. Uh, is a similar story. She's a princess. She's about to be devoured by a sea monster. I think I have a picture actually of this. Uh, if not for Heracles or Hercules, who comes with this giant club and smacks this sea monster, uh, I, I assume, in the head and defeats it. Um, that's one rendering of that story. Of course, there's Odysseus. We all read that in maybe elementary, middle school, high school. Probably all of us have read it at some point. Uh, he finishes the Battle of, of Troy, and then for 10 years, he can't go home to his wife, Penelope. He uh, is fighting these mythical creatures. The wrath of the gods is upon him. And he spends 10 years until he can come home to his wife Penelope, who during that time had fought off all of these evil suitors. And there's that great scene at the end, right, where, where Odysseus comes on the scene. Uh, if you've seen the Wishbone version, uh, it's especially epic. This little dog coming on the scene, defeating all the suitors and reuniting with his wife Penelope. Um, Fast forward, mid-20th century, uh, well, the 1980s, uh, The Princess Bride. This is kind of a redux version, right? It's like, it's, it's hip with the times. It's kind of spoofing that whole motif. This whole princess and the dragon, the damsel in distress, it rightly kind of puts into question whether or not this hero is actually a hero. He's kind of a, a nut. Um, I think when he comes and rescues uh, Princess Buttercup, uh, he, he like rolls down a hill and yeah, it's just this, it's hilarious. But it's also just a really good story, a really good story. It, it doesn't stop having that story of a princess and this man called Wesley, uh, who, who sets sail to find his fortune. He, he, they, everyone thinks he's dead. The Dread Pirate Roberts killed him, right? That's what they hear. Uh, but no, he comes back and he 
uh, challenges Humperdinck, the, the, the prince who's about to marry Princess Buttercup, and they, they're about to have a duel. I won't ruin it for you. But there's a happy ending. I, I think, why I bring this up, it, it still resonates with something deep, deep within us, even though we can get beyond the kind of maybe gender stereotypes that are part of this damsel in distress thing. Um, it, it resonates with our, our thirst for like something that's both romance and action thriller at the same time, right? We want a hero that's going to overcome obstacles just because, right? <laughs> just because good should win over evil. But we also want there to be a love story that, uh, that love overcomes all odds. That resonates with something deep inside us. And I think it resonates not with our desire to be the hero, actually. I think far more deeply for both men and women, it's a story that gives us hope that we too might be rescued. Now, chapter 17, 18, and 19, which we're going to cover tonight in Revelation, recount visions that John received of the end of the world as we know it, the certain doom of evil, and all those who ally themselves with wickedness. And it's a story of rescue. I want you to see that in that, um, in those terms. It's a story of rescue. One could say it is the OG, the best version, the true version, the greatest romance action thriller of all history. And it started being told long ago. In Eden, God created the world. He created this garden and put Adam and Eve in it. They were to cultivate it. And they were actually, it wasn't just a garden uh, just to remain this beautiful place for all this vegetation to exist, but it was supposed to be cultivated. There was supposed to be construction that would take place. They were supposed to create civilization. They were supposed to create a city where God would be with them, where God would dwell with his people. But as the story goes, instead of working towards that end, of bettering Eden into this garden city, this paradise, they rebel against God. And not too many chapters later, a few generations later, descendants of Adam and Eve build a tower called Babel. We all know what happens at Babel. God confuses their language, but the reason he does that is because the reason why they're building this tower is to reach the heavens and make a name for themselves. They want to rival the city of God with a city of their own. And throughout the Old Testament, we see this contrast between uh, what Augustine calls the city of God and the city of man. city of God being Zion or Jerusalem, the place where God dwells in his temple with his people, and the city of man, which is typified in cities like Babylon, Sodom, Gomorrah. So through the pages of Scripture runs the theme of these two cities, one established by God, and the other set against him. One a kingdom of light, the other a kingdom of darkness. But there's another theme that runs through the pages of scripture. It's, an, it's a love story. Not between a man and a woman, but between God and his people. Israel is the beloved of God. Uh, God, its maker, and Isaiah, it says, the Lord is your husband to Israel collectively. 
um, this husband, this groom, this Lord redeems it from slavery to sin and literal slavery, brings her into his presence. But this bride, the people of God, continually act in ways that are unfaithful to their groom. And repeatedly, the unfaithful Israel is compared to an adulterous wife, even at times a prostitute. When Israel sins and worships other gods, sells itself to the idols of power, wealth, and pleasure, it is called to return to its faithful groom, the Lord. So these three chapters of Revelation are combining, are setting forth and combining these two Old Testament themes and allusions. The climax of the story of the city and the bride. But things aren't looking so good at all. Let's uh, read 17, 1 through 6. I think I have that on here. Yeah, read along with me. Um, You're welcome to do that out loud, but you can do that silently. Um, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on the many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Okay, so I started off by giving you a kind of a toolkit of metaphors, of themes, of symbols in which to work. And so as we're working together to interpret this text, this difficult text, you can already start to tell what's happening. The unfaithful bride is this prostitute, represents those that have essentially married themselves to wickedness. They've been unfaithful to God. They've um, engaged in blasphemy, abominations, impurities, perhaps most heinous of all there at the end, verse 6, the sin of murdering martyrs. The blood of martyrs is on their hands. Going back to those myths I was alluding to or, or talking about earlier, Hesione has allied herself with the sea monster. Penelope has married the evil suitors, all of them. Buttercup has betrayed Wesley and has gone with evil Humperdinck. So this prostitute is riding on the back of the beast, the second part of that unholy trinity. Remember we saw the dragon, and then from the dragon came the beast, and then there was the false prophet call it the unholy trinity because it's trying to counterfeit the holy trinity god the father son and holy spirit so satan has found an ally in those that devote themselves to the worship of power money and pleasure and so you see these metaphors start to become mixed in chapter 18 it mainly talks about babylon we're still talking about the same thing but i want to Think about this and how it applies to the world today. This feels very mythic, maybe distant, maybe even concerning, maybe offensive. 
If last week Serena taught on the bowls of God's wrath, what was in view most of the time was individuals who rejected Christ, rebelled against him, and though they were given every chance to repent, they received judgment. This week, this passage, this set of chapters, is on the judgment of the systems and structures of sin that are symbolized in the prostitute and Babylon. Okay, so let's break that down. Sin is often thought about on individual terms. In Les Mis, Jean Valjean stole a loaf of bread. That was his sin. Uh, I cheated on the exam. I, I didn't, but you know. Uh, Cain killed Abel. These discrete individual acts. Uh, that's often how we think of sin. But sin is more complex than that. When you look at the systems and structures that individual sinners collectively create in concert with each other or in competition with one another, what happens? Well, corrupt systems, institutions, structures emerge. Families, institutions, companies, policies, legal structures. Any of these can be infected by sin such that sin and oppression is perpetuated to a greater scale, to a greater degree than what we're talking about when we talk about on an individual one-on-one level. So if you compare it to an animal, it's not this like pesky mosquito, this little sin, this bad habit that you can't get rid of. No, it's this huge, enormous, monstrous beast. Uh, Statistics show that Alcoholics sadly tend to raise alcoholic children. That's how a family system is affected by sin. Sadly, too, statistics show that abusers often beget abusers. Racist laws perpetuate racism. A theologian named Cornelius Plantinga, love that name, uh, he writes this. Moral evil is social and structural as well as personal. It comprises a vast historical and cultural matrix that includes traditions, old patterns of relationship and behavior, atmospheres of expectation, social habits. And so social scientists these days are are showing this to us with an enormous amount of data on racism, sexism, etc. But it actually is an old Christian doctrine. The doctrine that sin is hereditary. We are all born with a tendency, with a penchant. We're all born infected by sin. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So this uh, symbolism of this prostitute and this city, this prostitute and Babylon, um, It involves a lot of different sins, but I want to focus on kind of the big three. Money, sex, and power. Let's talk about money and how it uh, is used in such a way, right? right? Money itself is not evil. It's what we do with money. It's what Satan does with our hearts in relation to money. Uh, So we see this, the prostitute, she's adorned in the finest clothing. She is wealthy. She has gold, jewels, and pearls. She is rich. So 
If wealth is meant to be enjoyed with thanksgiving to God, if wealth is supposed to be used for the good of one's neighbor, um, that's not what's going on here. Um, how do we see this today? I think, it's, I think it's sadly just so easy to think of examples. I think one that just really struck me is very recent. Um, as we know, billions of dollars were given in economic relief in the wake of COVID-19. And it's coming out now, and the U.S. attorney just filed this against this organization called Feeding Our Future. Sounds like a great organization, right? And this is a quote from the U.S. attorney. This uh, group, Feeding Our Future, exploited a program designed to provide nutritious food to needy children during the COVID-19 pandemic. Instead, they prioritized their own greed, stealing more than a quarter of a billion dollars in federal funds to purchase luxury cars, houses, jewelry, and coastal resort property abroad. Talk about systemic sin. Think of how much institutional failure happened. Think of how many people had to work in concert to bring about that kind of fraud. It's for greed. They wanted wealth. Right now, they have wealth. Sex. Sex is a gift of God meant to be enjoyed in marriage. But like the prostitute in Revelation 17, uh, we are a world, we live in a culture that has found not just that sex sells, but that it can sell sex. In the U.S., 3.8 million adults and 1 million children are victims of sex trafficking. Pornography is a $97 billion industry globally. Roughly 10 to 12 billion of that comes from the U.S. The sin of pornography is not an isolated individual sin. You are feeding a system. Power. The prostitute and the beast it rides on enjoy tremendous power. If you read through the chapters, it says that all of the world's economy was dependent on this prostitute and the beast. Uh, Now, power is not the problem. God gives power to be used for benevolent ends. If we didn't have any power, we wouldn't be able to help people who are powerless, who are vulnerable. We're supposed to be using it for the right purposes, for God's glory. I'm keeping things anonymous uh, here, but I know someone who is a part of a company, about a 500-person company, and uh, it's, its mission and its purpose are all very, very benevolent. It's in the kind of biopharma industry. But the culture in this organization is not about the end goal, not about the end user of the medicine that they are creating, but it is about power. And each individual in the company working for their own power. Guys, you might graduate and you might go right into the heart of the beast. (laughs) You might go right into a corporate culture that is cutthroat. That is like this person I know where behind closed doors, people's reputations are bashed. Where every quarter when you have that meeting uh, with, with the board or with with your supervisors, there's this constant fear of missing out on promotions, bonuses. Uh, There's pandering because of this. People aren't themselves. They're dishonest. They're gossip. You don't know who your friends are. This is a system. This is a structure built on the idolatry 
of power. So I've talked about these three big sins, money, sex, not, not sins, but ways that we can sin in these ways, uh, money, sex, and power, and the systemic manifestations that we, uh, if just open our eyes, we can see all around us. Who will dismantle this system? Who will destroy it? Who will take it down? Revelation 18, 1 through 3. I think I have a slide for this as well. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And skipping to verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And craftsmen, and the light of a lamp, the voice of a bridegroom and bride. None of these will be found in you no, anymore. Uh, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. So Babylon was an actual city, right? Um, it was a city that often had the enemies of Israel. We're not talking about an actual city. We're not talking about even the, the historic biblical Babylon here. We're talking about this, the city that represents this system of evil, right? Uh, when that is destroyed, there are cries from all parts. Um, in this chapter, it says that the kings, the merchants, and the sailors, those who benefited from the system, wailed. They cried. They lamented. They said their, li- their livelihood is destroyed because they were bought in to the system of sin. But it says the righteous, those who have remained faithful to God, rejoice. Why would they rejoice? There are at least three reasons in our text. First, the corruption is ended. Judgment has come from a just judge. The blood of followers of Christ is avenged. Verse uh, 1 and 2 of 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. There's rejoicing, there's worshiping. The system of sin has been dismantled. Second, a wedding date is near. Verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God reigns, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Uh, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is a little preview 
what's to come in chapters, uh, chapters 21 and 22. There's a wedding coming. More, more on that in a little bit. Third, our hero has come. Our groom has come to conquer and to rescue. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his uh, name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And skipping to verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in the presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Should breathe a big sigh of relief, guys. This is the, the climax, the denouement of the story. The hero, the rider on the white horse, the word of God, Jesus has come to conquer, finally. In the legend of Hercules and Hesione, uh, that picture had a big club. Um, but one take on the legend has that Hercules actually allowed that sea monster to swallow him whole. And with a sword or somehow from the inside, he killed the monster to save Hesione. Jesus, in order to rescue his bride, his beloved, which is the church, which is all Christians, all those who believe in him, in order to rescue us, he went straight into death. He went straight into the mouth of the monster. And in doing that and raising up again, he showed his victory over death, which is Satan's greatest weapon. And he did this not just to be a hero story, not just to be an action thriller, but because of the romance, because of the love that he has for his people. Um, I came to Boston 2011, and one of the first weeks I met Sarah, who's now my wife, and a few years later we were married, and we found an apartment together. That was one of the first things we had to do. We, we weren't going to live with each other until after we were married, but we had to find an apartment quickly because they go fast. That was one task, and I was kind of the man for that task, right? I had to find the apartment. And then, of course, Sarah decorated and everything. Uh, but Sarah's task was far bigger, like after we were in, engaged. It was to throw the biggest and most expensive party that any of us had ever, you know, like the, both of us had ever thrown. Um, and those two things, you know, finding a place to stay, furnishing it, uh, dealing with realtors, and then dealing with wedding coordinators and in-laws and all of that. Both of those were battles at times. Like, like, like don't, don't get me wrong. But both were absolutely necessary for us. Both were non-negotiable. 
Because we had to have a place to live once we were married. And we had to have a ceremony where we could recite these vows together. One of the vows says that we would forsake all others. That we would be faithful to each other as long as we both shall live. That's really what it was for. Jesus, unlike the prostitute, was not faithful. Unlike us, who are not faithful, Jesus is the faithful one. He did all of this. He destroyed all of this systemic evil. He conquered the beast. And next chapter, we'll see that he conquers Satan, finally. All of that to be with us. All of that to make a place where he can hang out with us, enjoy our company forever. Sarah and I said, as long as we both shall live, Jesus says, for eternity. And guys, he's already made that vow. He is keeping it, he has kept it, and he will keep it. A lot has to happen before we can be with him in his presence. In chapter 21, we'll see how there is a new city, a new Jerusalem. Finally, the city of God comes out of the heavens. In the Gospels, Jesus says he is readying a place for us in the mansions of his Father's kingdom. It's not just a room, not just a mansion, a whole city that's meant for us. Part of this operation or, or this, this preparation, right? We're, we're, we're not, I, I don't want to use that, that analogy too closely because it's not like we're engaged or we're about to be married. Jesus, God has betrothed himself to us now. That is already finished. But we are awaiting this marriage supper where we will consummate the marriage, where we will feast together. There'll be nothing in the way of us enjoying God. But there's preparation. There's preparation that has to be done. Just like I had to get an apartment ready. Sarah had to get a a wedding ready. Of course, I helped her with that too. (laughs) And we can be a part of that. We can be a part of this preparation. Let's think of a a few ways how. Um, Well, first of all, it says in in verse 4, come out of Babylon, lest you take part in her sins. We need to think about the ways that we've aligned ourselves with the systemic structures of evil in this world and say, I got to get out of that. I got to get out of that web. Now, this doesn't mean leave the city. Actually, Christians have responded in this way. They've said, oh, the city's the problem. Let's go out to the the, the suburbs where everything's great and then the country. Uh, That's not the solution here. There's there's the whole other sermon for that. Um, We Christians live simultaneously in Babylon and God's kingdom. These things are invisible. So every day we have to exercise discernment and saying, is this a part of that system of Babylon or is this a part of God's kingdom? We have to exercise that wisdom together. And guys, we can be a part of saying that, hey, we know the end of the story. The kingdom of God is the final kingdom. The city of God is the final city, not the city of Babylon. So what we can do, if you're um, going to be a lawyer, fight for justice. 
Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, a famous alumni, perhaps one of the most famous of BU, says that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Right? That's a really popular quote. But it's true. And he could say that out of his conviction and faith because he knew the story of Revelation. He knew that the end is certain. Jesus, the just judge, will come. And so fight for justice now. We don't need to wait passively, but we can actively wait as we seek these victories. But we know that these little victories that we have are only a taste of what's to come in the end. And finally, like Christ, we can be faithful unto death because we know that he will raise us up for the great marriage supper of the Lamb to live forever in the new city of God. Guys, sometimes waking up and living this out can feel like you are going into the mouth of the beast. It may feel like that, but know that just like Christ slayed the beast so that he could be with us, if we die, he will raise us up and we will be with him forever. Does this all sound too good to be true? I know we have some cynics in the room, first and foremost. Does this sound like a myth? Does this sound like a fairy tale? Han Solo, The Force Awakens, it's a great line. He says this, he says, crazy thing. It's true, all of it, it's all true. Of course, he's talking about the Force, the Jedi, things that we don't believe are true. But guys, what if this is true? What would change about your life if it's true? It is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,